Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of the recently released Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W.blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at the farmpodcast.store. That is the farmpodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. All right. Today's guest is a serial entrepreneur and data activist. He is also a co-founder of TEDxMed Atlantic in nearby Washington, D.C., and has been studying disinformation campaigns for well over a decade. Most recently, he has been doing some incredible work tracing the origins of QAnon. Elsewhere, his series, The Big History Behind January 6th, available for free on Medium, is quite eye-opening, and I urge all of you guys to check it out. Folks, I give you guys the great David Troy. David, thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. Yeah, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. All right, today's chat is going to be wide-reaching. Naturally, we are going to tackle QAnon on January 6th, but uh, we're also going to look a little bit into the Vatican's internal politics, the history of conspiratainment, the Brothers Flynn, the Octopus, and even the Mighty I Am. Because you got to talk about the Mighty I Am if you get into these characters. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm sure a few other things along the way. So here we go. All right. A lot of modern day conspiratainment traces back to Cold War era propaganda. Now, David, can you cover a little bit of this legacy in groups like the John Birch Society and such? Yeah, sure. So um, it's been kind of an interesting journey to kind of map how all this connects together. Um, you know, looking at uh, some of the things that, you know, came out of the 80s, um, you, you kind of go back to um, around 1980 with the formation of the Council for National Policy, which was pretty much a organ of the Birch Society. So started by people like uh, Phyllis Schlafly and Jack Singlaub and Larry McDonald and that crew. And, um, you know, their whole thing is this like, you know, very staunchly anti-communist, um, uh, very pro gold standard. That was kind of the other thing that emerged from this was that it was a, a lot of rehashing of the, um, the gold standard debates that came out of the New Deal uh, era and the business plot and, and that you know set of things. So you combine that then with um, the efforts to fund uh, Iran Contra and the, you know getting arms to the Contras in Nicaragua and whatnot. Um, and, you know, you, that brings you into this cast of characters like Ollie North and Bud McFarlane. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, Jack Singla was also heavily involved in that. Um, and, uh, you know, it, all of these things kind of have their modern day uh, DNA, you know, that are present in things like QAnon. And the thing that, that we started to notice, you know, my little band of researchers started to notice in researching QAnon was that, there seemed to be a great deal of discussion at, at root if you kind of dug down a layer or so about the financial system and about the gold standard and about um, cryptocurrency and about the great reset and you know all of this stuff again you know being kind of tied into uh, protocols of the elders of zion and uh, anti-semitism connected to animus towards central banks 
we found that it was all interconnected and it took us a little while to figure out exactly how it all tied together. But once we did, it kind of snapped together like a really clear picture. So it's been a little bit of a journey to, to make those connections, but I think we've, we've sorted it out substantially now. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting point too. Uh, you know, when you look at a lot of conspiracy theories, how overwhelmingly they tend to focus on the banking industry. Um, you know, when they get mm -hmm. into the issues with corporate America, but um, they never mention defense contractors. You will never ever hear Alex Jones utter the words Lockheed Martin on air. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, those are those are their buddies. You know, it's 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 interesting. You know, you go look at somebody like G. Edward Griffin, who was big John Birch Society guy and is alive now and doing videos. I found one of them last night. He's still alive? From, yeah, he, there was, well, he, if How he's, old? he's not, like, what, a hundred or something? Like, <laughs> probably in his like late eighties or something. But um, yeah, I found a video of him from last year where he was talking about, uh, you know, silver certificates and, and the desire to abolish central banks and to use uh, non-state crypto and like these guys have been at the same stuff for decades it's the same deal over and over again yes yeah, like a broken record so to speak mm -hmm. all right so one of the things i really appreciated that you uh, brought up on medium was addressing the internal vatican politics that spill over into the u.s via things like standing rock and iran contra so it's like on the one hand there's the kind of left-leaning faction of the jesuits and then on the right, you've got a variety of groups like Opus Dei, the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, and Legatus. Now, could you break down mm -hmm. that, break that down a little bit for us? Yeah. So this kind of came out of a realization that when we were looking at QAnon-related activity and some of the, who the key actors were, we realized that they had also been active, many of them, at Standing Rock. And I happen to have a good friend who's a Native woman who. Um, was running the uh, a lot of the communications and organizational stuff at Standing Rock. So I called her up and I said, listen, you know, what do you know about these people turning up at Standing Rock? Why would they be involved with QAnon? What's the connection? And she was like, oh, wow, you know, that's kind of crazy. And we started digging into it. And we actually started talking to other people that were uh, sort of connected to that milieu, among them uh, General Wesley Clark, uh, Jr., um, who had been pulled into this veterans effort at Standing Rock. And what we found was that there were people involved there. There's a guy named Danny Sheehan uh, who was involved with um, the Silkwood case. He was also, his very first case was the Pentagon Papers case. Uh, he was involved with uh, a group called the Christic Institute, which sued Jack Singlaub and a bunch of other participants in Iran-Contra uh, back in like 1988, 89 timeframe. And so we were like, well, what's the deal with this guy, Sheehan? And it turns out that Sheehan is a Jesuit uh, lawyer and he's been involved, you know, sort of what appears to be on the other side of a lot of this stuff for, for decades. And so seeing that there was this kind of Catholic vector in there started to kind of have things make a little bit more sense. So if you recall uh, the situation with um, Iran-Contra, you know, you had the uh, kind of, um, uh, what is it, the, uh, the left-wing um, uh, theology, what is it, the Jesuit theology, liberation, liberation theology, theology yes. yeah, who were, you know, very pro-Sandinista, and then you had the uh, more right-leaning, you know, factions that were in support of uh, the Contras. And so there was an archbishop down there named uh, Romero, 
who was killed uh, by, I think the guy was named uh, Doberville, who was part of the Contra faction. And, um, you know, created this big stink and, you know, it's not cool to kill archbishops. And so uh, Danny Sheehan actually named his next group after the Christic Institute, after uh, this guy Romero, who was killed. So his group now is called the Romero Institute. And so I started listening to some of Danny Sheehan's lectures. And, you know, he was basically offering a whole series of free lectures that he teaches at UC Santa Cruz that connect um, uh, you know, the Iran-Contra situation with Standing Rock and into the same network of people that's active today with stuff like QAnon. And so on the one hand, I mean, you, you know, you know full well from working within this framework that there's a lot of colorful characters and you can't always take everything that they say at face value for a variety of reasons. So I went and verified a lot of the facts that Sheehan was putting forward and found, you know, several of them to be very easily verifiable and other ones maybe less so, but, you know, even just working with the things that you can directly verify, um, you know, there's, there's something here. And so you have this kind of broad um, division within the, um, the Catholic factions of this uh, left-leaning uh, progressive faction that would be characterized by the Jesuits. And of course, Pope Francis is the first Jesuit Pope uh, and then you have um, this more right-leaning sect, you know, people characterized by the Knights of Malta, the uh, Opus Dei group, and then there's a sort of pro-business group based out of Michigan, I believe, called Legatus, that is a pro, you know, pro-business Catholic group that, you know, if you run a big company, you can, you can be admitted membership there, and it's a networking group, and that's how a lot of these um, religious uh high-level secret groups work is they're effectively network groups. And, you know, on the one hand, Opus Dei, I think, you know, sort of people think that it's like super pious and all of this, and there may be elements of that, but at the end of the day, it's really about enabling unfettered capitalism from everything that I've been able to read. So um, if you recall also, uh, Michael Flynn was promoting letters by a archbishop named uh, Carlo Maria Vigano, uh, who was sort of, he was, he was the guy that was behind the Vatican leaks uh, situation that emerged in around 2012, I wanna say. And, you know, these leaks showed that there were a whole bunch of different Catholic priests that were engaged in uh, sexual abuse and that sort of thing, and that they had been re reassigned rather than, you know, defrocked. And so there's this whole sense within the church that some of the right-leaning folks don't think that the Pope is legitimate. They're trying to find dirt on him to try to get him out. And of course, surprisingly, it centers on pedophilia, you know, so it's, it's all of these themes that we keep hearing in all these different other forms, um, but as expressed through this uh, ostensible schism in the Catholic Church. And I think that that's such a deep topic. You know, you could, I, obviously Vatican politics or <laughs> something you could spend a lot of time digging into. And, and as a relatively novice reader on this, I don't claim to have any special knowledge, but what I do think is interesting is how there seems to be factional alignment between what's happening there, what happened with Iran-Contra, what has happened, you know, with other cases through history. There seems to be a, a continuous division there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you see a little bit, I think, of some payback maybe being played out now. I mean, of course, when um, Pope John Paul II um, 
assume the chair of the throne, rather, of St. Peter, um, under very questionable circumstances. Uh, he made an effort to really crack down on the Jesuits, I think, to the point where he had replaced the uh, head of their order or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of interesting that I think Francis did essentially the same thing um, to the Knights of Malta once he became the Pope. So there's kind of this uh, ongoing tit for tat, I think, maybe playing out in some of those circles, too. For sure. And I think that that's kind of, you know, what's interesting about this is that these longstanding grudges between factions uh, end up expressing themselves in what we consider to be sort of our local history, you know, like this is this is what's happening right this second. But it's these stories that, you know, have arcs that last over decades, you know, so or centuries in some cases. <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> Another kind of interesting name uh, you might encounter with some of the left-leaning Jesuits is uh, Deschardes, Pierre Teilhard Deschardes, I believe is how it's pronounced. Uh, he was a Jesuit theologian, but um, he's had a lot of philosophical influence and some really um, surprising currents. Uh, you actually see a lot of his ideology come up in some of the New Age movement and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, so I gather Sheehan's actually quite a fan of Deschardes as well. Um, and then also, um, have you heard the allegations that Seymour Hirsch made, I think it was probably about a decade ago or so now, that um, quite a few of the uh, Pentagon's upper brass uh, were members of the Knights of Malta? I have not heard that from Seymour Hirsch per se. I have heard various rumors that suggest that people like Michael Flynn and uh, Stanley McChrystal and whatnot are members of the Knights of Malta and that perhaps that um, that, you know, helps explain some of their uh, allegiances and behavior, which it may, um, but that's a, that's a layer that I haven't been able to independently verify. Yes, it is an interesting topic. Um, certainly there have been a long line of military men who were fascinated by these orders of knighthood in this country for a while now. For sure, yeah. And, you know, the thing that we see in the whole QAnon thing, the thing that really drew us into to trying to understand what was actually happening here was the uh, broad participation by people from both the military and the intelligence community. It's, it's striking when you start to look at it. It's not, you know, at first we were sort of like, well, this is just online clowns being ridiculous. But then you see that there's all these military intelligence people that have been promoting it. And it's quite alarming. So yeah, they're, they're very into this stuff. Absolutely. And um, they've certainly used some rather absurd things in the past, so um, which we're about to get yeah. into. So, um, yeah, QAnon is not exactly uh, anything especially novel in that regard. Yep. So, um, and the topic of cults, then, let us get into the good old Mighty I Am movement for just a second here. It's a scarlet thread that runs through this netherworld from at least the 1930s to the present day. Lots of lovely people like William Dudley Paley, uh, Robert uh, Leferbe, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, and of course Thomas Schoenberger have all been linked to it. How does the mighty I am keep attracting this kind of talent decade after decade? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, for me, this was new material because, like, while I'm a pretty, you know, well read student of American history, especially. Cold War topics like, you know, spycraft and, you know, things like the Ware Group and Kim Philby and all that kind of stuff. I was very aware of all that, but I was way less aware of this kind of occult society stuff. So when we started to run across all of these IM threads uh, with, you know, researching the, the folks behind QAnon and even like the Koch brothers are tied to it through Lefevre. Um, you know, it was it was something kind of odd. I, I was vaguely familiar with Crowley and Blavatsky and 
you know, all of the kind of theosophic kind of stuff, but I, I really was not um, aware of, of how it had been uh, a common thread throughout American history, particularly in the 20th century. So, you know, I read up on the Ballards who, you know, founded Theosophy. We tried to establish if there were any direct links between their family and some of the people involved, and we don't think that there is. But um, it, it seems to me as though uh, this I am uh, group, uh, you know, which a lot of people, you know, if I talk to people about it today, they'll say, well, isn't it didn't that turn into Church Universal and Triumphant, which was Elizabeth Clare Prophet's organization, and isn't it defunct? Like, didn't it go out of business when when she retired and her children didn't want to do it anymore? And the answer to that, as best I can tell, is no, it's not out of business. The IAM group still has a, offices in Schaumburg, Illinois, and there still seems to be a lot of people that are pretty wound up in this and sharing memes and other kinds of content that indicate their involvement in it. So, um, uh, you know, it's hard to say how formal any of this is and, and whether or not it's, you know, what you might consider to be any kind of organized movement at this point or whether it's much more of like a loosely knit network. But, um, you know, it, it seems to be a real force. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, Thomas Schoenberger was somebody that uh, he goes by Thomas St. Germain um, which, you know, St. Germain being the primary uh, spiritual uh, entity behind, or, you know, sort of at the center of um, I am theosophy. And, you know, there's a bunch of other people that we found in the network that, uh, you know, are, are sharing that kind of content or connected to, you know, Mount Shasta, which is like this, the sacred site of I am. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's pervasive. So, the thing that I found most recently, or more correctly, one of my research partners found most recently was um, direct links between IAM and um, Fred Koch um, by way of uh, Robert Lefevre. And Robert Lefevre is really interesting if you haven't explored him because he got, um, he was involved with the original IAM folks, the Ballards uh, in the 1930s and 40s and was actually indicted on some kind of like mail fraud charges related to IAM in like 1940. And uh, he um, went on to form this thing called the Freedom School, which was pretty much like a testing ground for a lot of new, new American libertarianism ideas. So they were teaching all about the non-aggression principle and they had like von Mises and Milton Friedman and that whole, uh, you know, the Ayn Randian crowd, um, all of those folks were sort of part of that milieu and, um, you know, developing these ideas of, um, uh, you know, that were central to modern uh, American libertarianism. But particularly, the thing that stood out for me was this uh, idea of the non-aggression principle, which um, is pretty much just the idea that, like, you know, if you uh, have a government and you tax somebody, then like, you know, that's aggression when you tax them. And and it roots in this like idea of like, if you do anything at all to intervene with somebody else's affairs, then that's aggression. And of course, what's interesting is that Lefevre actually calls it the, um, he's anti-molestation. So rather than non-aggression, he says it's anti-molestation, which, you know, of course, we think of molestation now as being primarily a sexual thing. But these guys, you know, in like 1952 timeframe, they were thinking about it as a, um, uh, you know, molestation being any kind of form of, of taxation or any kind of, you know, socialism. So it was all tied up with that anti-communism sentiment, which is why they were also so 
uh, gung ho with things like um, you know Wackle and uh, um, you know the John Birch Society. Yeah, it's um it's really interesting when you sort of go back and look um, also at sort of the origins of the '60s counterculture movement in the early '60s because you do see this really strong um, libertarian current that runs through virtually all of it. I mean, obviously, I mean a big touchstone text was "Stranger in a Strange Land" by um, the uh, Anne Rand Arch fan Robert A. Heinlein. Mm -hmm. uh, you get people like Stuart Brand and, of course, Carrie Thornley, who was a graduate of the Freedom School. And, um, of course, that kind yep. of ties into the whole uh, legacy of Discordianism that became so crucial to QAnon later as well. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you point out the Shafley Eagle form uh, as a major player in the events of January 6th. Uh, could you get us, give us a bit of a brief rundown of the forum and how it contributed? Yeah, so it's really the, the strong overlap between the Schlafly Eagles Forum uh, community with the Council for National Policy. Um, you know, I had been tracking various, what I have been calling disinformation actors uh, connected to that network for years. And my working theory uh, starting in around 2016 was that these folks were somehow or another connected to Russia. Many of them I could prove were, you know, so that wasn't really you know, too too much of a stretch to think that, but I didn't yet have a, a sort of a framework for understanding how they were connected directly into the apparatuses of American political power. And so um, after January 6th, um, my colleague, uh, Ann Nelson, who is a terrific writer who wrote a book called Shadow Network about the Council for National Policy, wrote a really comprehensive article about how all these different folks from uh, the Council for National Policy were involved with uh, January 6th. I mean, you had Amy and Kylie Kramer taking out the permit for the event on the ellipse. You had Ali Alexander, who was a CNP member and also was part of the Schlafly Eagles group, um, you know, um, showing up to do the principal organizing. I mean, you had, um, uh, Dr. Simone Gold, uh, who had been spreading COVID disinformation all of last year, actually in the uh, Capitol building and, um, uh, you know, creating disruption there. You had Mickey Willis, who was the filmmaker who created the pandemic propaganda film, uh, you know, filled with misinformation last year, uh, who was at January 6th. And incidentally, Mickey Willis was also at Standing Rock as part of the same set of operations that were trying to destabilize things there. So, you know, when Anne put out that article, I realized that, okay, you know, that, that network of folks that I had been looking at for a long time was actually related through the CNP network. And then when we started looking at um, some of the photographs and event programs and things having to do with the Schlafly Eagles group, we realized that was that same core network of people. It's like 100% overlap between that network and, uh, and the CNP January 6th network. So um, the really interesting thing that we found when looking at this, the Eagles network a little bit further was that in 2018, they hosted a, you know, a dinner as part of their event and there was an awards dinner and the award was to Michael Flynn and Michael Flynn was the recipient of the very first Jack Singlaub award given by Jack Singlaub's organization. Now Singlaub is 99 years old, he's still alive. And, uh, you know, I was like, okay, that's pretty weird. And so that sent me down this whole rabbit hole with 
you know, Singlaub and, and CNP and Yamashita's Gold and, you know, the foundation and the CIA and the OSS. And, um, you know, one thing that we had been tracking with respect to uh, the QAnon stuff and the people behind it was that there seemed to be some kind of longstanding rift or, or, or between basically the, the career CIA people who, you know, uh, these people seem to have a lot of disdain for, and then like the OG uh, OSS people for, and, the, and like special forces folks for, for whom they seem to have a great deal of respect. And so, um, you know, and if you recall what some of the chatter was with QAnon in like December, uh, a lot of it was talking about removing Gina Haspel at CIA, that, you know, disbanding the CIA, shattering it to a thousand pieces to use that old Kennedy quote, which may or may not be ap apocryphal. Um, and so uh, this whole notion of like uh, concern over uh, the future of the CIA and whether or not it, it had been infiltrated by communists and all this kind of thing takes you straight back into the middle of that whole church committee uh, moment in 1975, you know, when they were basically trying to figure out what to do with the intelligence community that had kind of gone rogue. And, um, you know, the, the fact that Carter had recalled um, Singlaub from Korea and his gripes over that and the concerns that the Korea lobby had and the Moonies had, you know, in the Korea Gate situation where they were trying to return troops to, uh, to Korea. So anyway, uh, the, the thing that we learned was that the Schlafly Eagles event provided photographic evidence that these people were hanging out together for a, a number of years, um, you know, and also in the context of the Council for National Policy. I would say that the Eagles group seems to be kind of a um, subset of the broader CNP group, and then the CNP group as a whole was also extremely involved in this. And I would say that overall, they're all just kind of fronts for the John Birch Society. They're, they're operating with the exact same set of values and interests and, you know, in many cases, some of the same people that have held over the course of decades, including Singlaub. So it was very interesting to figure all that out. Yeah, I mean, Singlaub is just, in a lot of ways, I mean, he's really the poster boy for, um, you know, really the uh, the blowback um, from just the decades now of uh, these, you know, intelligence and military operations. Because I've, in my research, and I'm sure you probably noticed a similar thing, I mean, the problem is with guys like this, they build up these, these massive fiefdoms while they're in the military or the CIA, they have all of these assets, they have all of these resources and what have you as part of these networks that they put together. And then, you know, you try to drum them out of the CIA or the military, these networks just don't disappear. You know, I mean, they're all totally private, they're off the books. And um, yeah, effectively, now they can, can continue to run them and now without any kind of real oversight. So um, yeah, yeah, the thing that, that, that I think we kind of picked up on and again, it was interesting to come to this kind of from the standpoint of not really knowing what I was looking at, but trying to use the truth and, and facts and deductive reasoning as much as possible to try to sort it out. The thing that, that we found was that there was definitely what looked like a global network of these folks that were coordinated. We found you know, communications with folks in Australia. We found communications with folks in Europe. There's people that are from Europe, you know, people like from AFD and uh, from, 
um, the PIS party in Poland attending the Schlafly dinner, you know, so you have this sense that it's global. And the other thing that you kind of, you know, realize, as you say, is with these intelligence officers, um, you know, once they've kind of been at that game for a while, you never, you never really stop being, being and thinking like an intelligence officer and you never lose the networks that you have. So there's always going to be kind of like a, what I would call like a state-backed legitimate intelligence community. And then there's going to be a parallel, maybe not, you know, uh, currently in power, sort of in exile uh, network of intelligence people. And they're extremely powerful. They have a lot of ability to affect change. You know, you look at the October surprise situation that happened, uh, you know, in 1980 with uh, Reagan and the hostages and whatnot. That's these guys, you know, they apparently conspired to, um, you know, delay the release of these hostages until after Reagan's election. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that that's a really interesting theme to think about with respect to how the world functions is in that there is always going to be this tension between like the the state-run, you know, legitimate authority that people think that they have voted into office. And then there's going to be this parallel, you know, sort of shadow group that, you know, is, is in tension with them. So it's really, it's, it's fascinating to, you know, kind of see that really crystallized and, and to see it expressed through even modern operations like QAnon. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, which again kind of illustrates uh, the issues of what you do with these um, officers. I mean, once they're out of the service. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it raises a really legitimate question of like, how do you prevent them from being radicalized? Um, how do you ex prevent them from being um, targeted by foreign governments for radicalization? Um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, I think, a really challenging question and I think we're just even just scratching the surface of it right now in the, in the United States in terms of you know understanding both the role of the ex folks who helped cheerlead this but then also you know the notion that many people inside the military right now are also somewhat radicalized and or radicalizable we, we have a real problem on our hands Absolutely. And that uh, brings us to our next point of discussion here. And uh, that is a figure who has come to my attention in a big way lately, a certain General Charles Flynn, the brother of Michael. Uh, the series of events involving the brothers Flynn leading up to January 6th is very curious. Michael Flynn has gotten most of the attention, but his brother Charlie, who is still active duty military, has flown under the radar. Uh, could you shed a little light on this guy? Yeah, I mean, just, you know, the very little bit that's available in the public press reports. I mean, basically, the issue with what happened on January 6 was, you know, and I can say this, we in the extremism research community had been kind of forecasting what we thought was going to happen on January 6. And our read on it was that um, we did not see significant signs that left-leaning groups, you know, what people like to call Antifa, but probably isn't quite so organized a thing as that, but at any rate, left-leaning folks who might have opposed various kinds of right-leaning folks who would have been in Washington just weren't showing signs of turning up there. We didn't think that that was going to happen, and that turned out to be basically right. There really was not any significant left-leaning component there on January 6th, but the thing that none of us, um, you, know, you know, really nobody in the, in the research extremism community 
predicted was the idea that the capital would not be defended. You know, like there was no universe in which we thought that the capital could be stormed by a bunch of, um, you know, riled up people with MAGA flags. That just didn't seem plausible because certainly we were capable of defending it. We just didn't. And so now that we understand a little bit more of the why we didn't, I think that's where you get into the people like Flynn and that, you know, there was really two factors that contributed to the siege being successful. The one was the incredible delay that took place that was put in place partly by the objections to the vote count done by, you know, Alabama, Arizona, what have you, um, that, you know, sort of dragged things on so that by the time that the crowd got there, they would still be in session. And then, you know, the other thing was this incredible uh you know very long delay i think it was something like three hours and a few minutes or so uh delay by the pentagon in granting requests for the deployment of national guard troops and um, apparently charles flynn was in the room when the requests came in from um i believe larry hogan governor of maryland was making requests i believe you know uh, various folks in D.C. government were making requests, people of the Capitol, and they were debating the optics. Now, sure, you know, the optics of sending National Guard troops to the Capitol is something you want to think about. But when you've got an active, uh, you know, overwhelmed situation, like I, I think that that level of delay was simply not appropriate. And what it ended up meaning was rather than troops arriving there relatively quickly and, and at a time that would have been useful, say, like around you know, 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that sort of neighborhood. Uh, instead, you had uh, troops showing up there at something around 5.30, 6 o'clock at night uh, by the time that things had mostly been, um, you know, neutralized on the inside. So, um, uh, you know, I think that Charles Flynn seems to have been playing some kind of a role there. Um, the Army, when asked about it, initially denied it and not only didn't just they did, did they not disclose the information? They, they said that he did not, but then it turned out that he did. So my working hypothesis for the moment, until we can prove otherwise, is that um, there were various folks at the Pentagon who were actively participating in this plan. And again, you know, <laughs> the problem that you have when evaluating a lot of these folks is like, they're doing stuff that doesn't necessarily make any sense in the real world. Like it doesn't comport with how the world actually functions, but that doesn't mean that isn't, that isn't what they thought they were doing. <laughs> you know, like they, I think they thought that they could somehow or another, um, you know, engineer this in a way that this um, effort to, you know, basically halt the certification of the election would have been successful. And, um, you know, that turned out not to be the case, but I still think that they thought that there was some kind of roll of the dice that would have made that possible and possibly having Charles Flynn, Ezra Cohen-Watnick, you know, Anthony Tata, there's that whole group of people that, that Trump installed in the Pentagon on November 10th or so um, that I think uh, was pertinent to this set of decisions. So anyway, hopefully we'll learn more about that at some point. I'm a little dis disappointed that Congress doesn't seem to be appointing some kind of special commission to investigate this. So hopefully some of the individual committee committees that are organizing inquiries into this will reach its, some kind of interesting conclusions.
No, it's it's baffling that it's not getting more attention because I mean, if I'm not mistaken, there was really no reason for Charles Flynn to even be in the room. I don't think he was um, in the chain of command for the decision you yeah. know, to deploy troops to the capital. So it's kind of like, what was he even doing there in the first place? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't even I don't know what his you know set of responsibilities would normally be, but yeah, why was he involved? It just doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, um, well, he also was promoted, too, which is kind of the other interesting thing about this. He actually seems like um, he benefited from the events on January 6th. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's wild. There was another interesting uh, aspect that sort of played out in those last few months of the Trump presidency that you were maybe alluding to a little bit earlier, and that was sort of the ongoing kind of rivalry between the career CIA types and, um, you know, some of these kind of special operations types. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that really stood out to me that Christopher Miller, the acting Secretary of Defense, did was effectively try to strip the CIA of access to paramilitary forces from the military, um, which really Mm -hmm. crippled their ability to, uh, you know, conduct convert operations at all yep Uh, did you have any thoughts on that well just you know we we had identified Ezra Cohen Watnick as a sort of character of interest in all of this uh some time ago and there are reasons to think that he's close with uh people like Jason Sullivan who was Roger Stone's kind of social media guy he was actually Jason Sullivan was featured in this HBO documentary the other day talking about his extensive Twitter tools to help amplify content and, you know, get you extra followers and stuff. And there was a kind of a a LARP that was connected with QAnon um, called E and it went by different flavors like E the friend and things like that. That was loosely sort of, you know, intimating that it was connected with Cohen Watnick somehow. And obviously, you know, it could just be somebody play acting at that it could be something sort of in between my, my personal theory is that uh Ezra Cohen Watnick was not um you know directly running that you know LARP but that he may have known people who were and there was a bunch of intelligence that leaked out through that channel and you know by intelligence I mean stuff that only somebody like Cohen Watnick would have known uh that you know, lent credibility to that account's ability to get access to information. And so that little network of people, Cohen Watnick and his buddies, um, seem to be super interested in, you know, the low intensity conflict, special operations forces kind of world. And in fact, uh, you know, what Miller did in that November timeframe was he assigned a whole bunch of that stuff uh, to Cohen Watnick and away from CIA. Um, and then furthermore, um, I believe that when um, Cohen Watnick was working for Flynn directly at DIA, um, he had been transferred over to CIA for a while to serve as kind of a mole in CIA to report back to DIA around what their activities were and how things worked and what, who was doing what, whatever. But I, I, I really do believe that there's this longstanding um, sort of gripe between um, the current modern CIA and the groups like the DIA, and that there's a, a strong faction inside the military that thinks that um, all of those kind of special ops and um, uh, intelligence gathering you know, capabilities should be re-centralized uh, underneath the military and taken away from um, Uh, you know, civilian control, as it were. And if you think about, you know, something like Iran-Contra, 
where you know you basically had a bunch of special ops guys who kind of wanted to just be left alone and do whatever they wanted to under the banner of the cia and had been doing so for decades uh when the boland amendment came around and they got told no you can't fund you know your uh we're, we're not going to fund your, your weird dark ops um they went private and decided to go rogue and use private military contractors and raise their own funds and use gold and whatever else they were doing um I think that that created this kind of, you know, modern rift that we have, and I just don't think it's resolved. I think they're still trying to figure out how to, how are they going to settle this, this longstanding gripe. And, um, you know, something like QAnon is basically the revenge of this, um, you know, faction of folks that felt as though, uh, you know, they should be allowed to do what they wanted to unfettered. And, you know, this is them trying to regain control. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, I also think to some extent, too, I mean, there's maybe a certain contempt, uh, you know, expressed by somebody like Flynn for a guy like, uh, say, James Clapper, who was basically, uh, you know, a career, uh, uh, what, intelligence analyst, or no, Brennan, I believe, was the one who was an intelligence analyst. But uh, the point being, I mean, these guys spent a lot of their careers behind the desk, you know, I mean, unlike a guy like Flynn, who actually did deploy um, pretty regularly. It kind of seems like there's maybe a bit of that divide between some of the people who actually uh, were in the field of battle versus those who have done a lot of their work, uh, you know, from office buildings in Washington, D.C. Yep. Yeah, I think that's it. And I, I, in talking with a lot of former Intel people, you know, the, the sense that I had was that, you know, you, you had that, that resentment of people who had been in the field and doing special ops versus the sort of more bureaucratic types. Um, and, uh, you know, also you had uh, people like a Michael Scheuer. Um, I don't know if you know who Michael Scheuer is, but he was the founder of the um, Alex Station, which was the CIA unit in charge of tracking bin Laden from like 1996 to 2000. Oh, Tony Schaefer. No, no, not Tony Schaefer, uh, Michael Scheuer. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, he wrote the book Imperial Hubris and whatnot, but you know he's sort of an, a different archetype in that he wasn't one of these like kind of in the field special forces guys he was very much a um you know kind of a, a desk jockey but at the same time sorry my car's making noises um at the same time Scheuer um uh you know developed a great deal of resentment for basically like you know the, the president like at one point he actually testified that the, the obama should be like assassinated before he, he testified before congress and said this which is remarkable um but uh you know so the, the, you you kind of have this faction that formed between these people that had been kind of pushed out because they were kind of odd ducks and became kind of radicalized on their own and then they were sort of willing to ally with the folks that harbored the the uh, special forces uh, resentment so it, it's it's a weird mix of of kind of you know land of the misfit toys combined with uh, these kind of super soldier types that think that they're better than everybody else one of the odd guys in a lot of this is Stanley McChrystal, because, I mean, I don't know if you've read uh, Michael Hastings, uh, The Operators, but, I mean, there was a very close connection between the McChrystal family and the Flynn family for many years, and yet these guys right. kind of found themselves a bit of a divide in the whole uh, QAnon thing, uh, which is rather interesting. Yeah, no, I, I don't know quite what to make of that. And I've had several people recently point me to McChrystal and say, you should really dig in more on McChrystal. I know McChrystal a little bit. I've met him before and, and had him at an event. And, um, 
you know, found him to be very sensible uh, at that time. <laughs> now that was a few years ago, um, but at the same time, like I've been following what he's been doing more recently and haven't found him to be off the deep end the way that say Flynn has. Um, but at the same time, like I don't doubt that they probably are still maybe close in some ways. And I do think that that's interesting. Um, you know, McChrystal may have been also connected with groups like the Knights of Malta and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, from my perspective right now, I've been more focused on kind of like trying to put, you know, draw a chalk line around where sort of the biggest problems are and like try to focus on that. And, I, and I've kind of cut McChrystal some slack because he was um, not endorsing stuff like QAnon and not, you know, acting like an extremist. But um, I, I do think that that's worth digging into more, if only to understand, um, you know, maybe some of the psychology behind Flynn. Um, and I need to read Hastings' book as well. I have not yet, but it's on my list. Oh, yeah. No, it's uh, definitely provides a pretty uh, interesting insight into that whole, you know, clique of military officers that uh, still seem to wield quite a bit of uh, influence both inside and outside the Pentagon. Yep. Um, all right, so let's talk about the octopus here for a moment. It's a uh, purported network of former military and intelligence officers, uh, roughly speaking, and active in a host of black operations and electioneering. Uh, when researchers like Mike, or excuse me, Mark Lombardi and uh, Danny Casolaro started chronicling it, its outposts consisted of ideological groups like the World Anti-Communist League or the Western Goals Foundation. Is it your sense that these groups have really rebranded themselves as like uh, private military companies and private intelligence companies in the 21st century to carry on this kind of work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting, very broad network that probably defies like sort of an easy explanation for even what it is. I think it's kind of like what we were talking about before, where you have this persistent global network of, um, you know, intelligence people, some who are legit and, you know, currently empowered by the state, some of whom are, are working on their own. Um, so it's something like that. But um, I actually just read in the last couple of days the book that was done on Casalero's uh, notes and just for listeners that may not know this guy Danny Casalero was a writer and reporter who in uh, the late 90s um, I'm sorry in the late 80s early 90s um, started searching researching about all of these kinds of incidents that involved um, uh, you know private military contractors like Wackenhut um, which you know did a lot of security work for CIA uh, and had also partnered with the Cabazon Indian tribe in California, which is quite small, but they had enough land there that they could do stuff like uh, develop weapon systems like fuel air explosive systems and rail guns and stuff like that. And um, so there's kind of this interesting overlap between uh, what I would consider to be sovereign communities like Indian reservations and some of these private military contractors. And that was really where we ran into this and how I kind of realized that we were dealing with this octopus entity uh, was looking at Standing Rock um, was that um, there's a, a firm that was deployed there called Tiger Swan, which uh, was kind of a spinoff of um, Blackwater, uh, Eric Prince's company. And it was started by a guy that had been a VP at Blackwater. And, uh, you know, they did some pretty nasty stuff at, uh, at Standing Rock. Basically, the idea there was that you had this uh, network of Native people combined with, I would consider to be environmentalists and, 
anti-fossil fuel activists and people you know care about climate and stuff like that who were there protesting the pipeline and it seems as though uh, there was a pretty concerted effort done by at least Tiger Swan as a private military contractor but possibly other entities involved as well to infiltrate overwhelm and break up that um, naturally occurring uh, native protest and of course you know you've got people like Danny Sheehan who are on the scene who shows back up he's he's on the Jesuit side and seems to be working with you know one faction of the native peoples and then you've got you know uh, this tiger swan group which is you know very eric prince like deploying all these kinds of former military former security kind of people who uh are you know trying to like compromise people give them drugs you know, like it's it's got all the, the special forces things going on at once and the people that i know who were there you know, people like my friend who ran communications and people like Wes Clark Jr. report being kind of thoroughly mindfucked by the situation because everybody was kind of acting in bad faith. You didn't really know who was on your side and who wasn't. And everybody was trying to like, you know, uh, either somehow or another act in good faith and, and preserve this protest or that everybody else was pretending that they were doing that while trying to blow it up. <laughs> so it was, it's a real mess. And, um, you know, when you start to see that these networks of people kind of persisting, you know, over time and in the same contexts too. Like right now, there's a lot of interest in um, say like native communities precisely because they're they have sovereignty. And so they can do stuff like, you know, introduce projects that are based on cryptocurrency and nobody can really stop them. And so there's a lot of people that want to infiltrate and gain power within these sovereign communities specifically so as to use them as a uh, as a test bed. So, um, uh, you know, I think Danny Casalero probably above all probably deserves credit for coining the phrase the octopus as kind of a convenient way of talking about this interrelated network of interests that has persisted for a long time and and seems to kind of be mostly about the same things over the course of time. But um, I think that what I found was that there's almost no, um, I would say, intelligence-based network that doesn't, after a couple of degrees of, of digging, tie back to this fundamental network of people. It's all kind of like this is the 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 wiring on which the world is built, basically. So, very interesting stuff. Absolutely, and uh, well, I mean, for me personally, it's sort of just looking at the um, what I kind of like to think of as the SCL, um, or is it SCL yeah. or SLC? But um, SCL, yeah, 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 that kind of broader network because I mean, it ties together so many of these groups. I mean, the Flynn Intelligence Group, uh, potentially Frontier Services yep. Group, which is Eric Prince's outfit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, it it kind of seems like in a lot of ways a kind of twenty uh, first century world anti communist league. But I mean, now it's sort of these uh these military uh, contractors uh, trying to preserve capitalism or something to that effect. Or yeah, it's it's the sum of all the above. And I, I that SCL is actually kind of was my first entry point into understanding this network. I started studying it in late twenty sixteen or so, and started you know getting alerts every day about SCL. So I've been hyper aware of what SCL has been up to for years and I've read all that back history and everything. And, um, you know, it, I definitely think that it's a key part of what's going on now. And somebody like Brittany Kaiser too, um, who, you know, ostensibly left the company in March of 2018 when things were blowing up 
that she quote unquote became a whistleblower, which is not really credible because she <laughs> she did a bunch of things that that protected her and did not exactly distance herself from any of this. She's still deeply involved with this stuff. She's tied up with Bannon on this, uh, you know, 2020 presidential campaign that Brock Pierce ran, this child actor who got super into crypto. Um, and, uh, you know, she's, she's all up in it. So like, it's this, it's this unholy cocktail of like crypto, um, you know, private military contractors, big oil, um, you know, folks trying to throw elections in, in various countries. Um, it's, it's all the above and a lot of abuse of data too. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely one of the, uh, central aspects of all of this and which, uh, sadly, uh, well, I mean, I guess the data, um, issue has gotten a little bit more press, uh, in recent years, but I mean, I think the the implications behind it are what people don't really understand, which is namely the ability of these companies to use this data to craft highly accurate personality profiles, which can be used against both individuals and, um, you know, communities at large. Uh, which yeah, I think the, the, it's the community aspect that people don't necessarily understand. Like if I can understand roughly how a certain community of people is going to respond to certain kind of messaging, then you can control their behavior. This is the old, uh, you know, reflexive control kind of doctrine that, uh, you know, folks like Garasimov talk about. Um, and everybody's concerned about themselves, like, oh, I don't, I don't share my data or I don't care. I have nothing to hide. I don't care about my data. But it, what they don't understand is that you as an aggregate organism as part of a community can be manipulated in ways that you can't even really fully like perceive. And um, that's, that's the real danger is you can do this kind of broad scale social engineering on societies that are extremely detrimental, but that you don't even know that are happening to you. Um, so we, we need to get a lot smarter about that stuff. Absolutely. All right, a, um, a particularly uh, sketchy character who comes up in the octopus is Robert Booth Nichols. There are a lot of guys like him around. Another one in those circles was a guy allegedly called Henry Fisher. He hailed from Australia, but claimed all kinds of lineages. He had the uh, moral flexibility to work with Rupert Murdoch, the KGB, and Willis Carto at various points, sometimes overlapping. A lot of these guys also turn up in the UFO fields uh, as well, especially ex-spoofs. And they appear to be little more than grifters and con men cashing in on their status. I get the sense from a lot of these guys pumping the QAnon and the Trump movement as well, which begs the question, I mean, how much of this is ideological and how much of it is a confidence game? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that I've kind of come to conceive of it is that it's all kind of part of the same, part of a fabric that is needed to support operations like this. So, for example, you know, you talk about people who are grifters, and I only became, you know, aware of Robert Booth Nichols fairly recently, but, you know, a lot of the other people you named and some of the people involved in the QAnon situation, um, you know, they are weren't uh, running kind of what I would consider to be self-sustaining ops. And the question also becomes, you know, to what extent are they true believers in this stuff? And to what extent are they useful idiots? And to what extent are they both? And I think that there's people that kind of span the spectrum on all of those um, scores throughout this network. So for example, there's a guy named Paul Ferber who um, uh, 
was it was called Baruch the Scribe online, uh, who was involved with QAnon, and he was pretty widely considered to be a true believer. And you know, when you're a true believer and you're amplifying this stuff, there's opportunities to gain you know modest fame and and make money and uh, have a following and that sort of thing. And so you end up with this kind of symbiotic relationship where these these are folks who maybe are helping the app advance. They are maybe some mix of winning and unwitting. And more importantly, though, they are self-supporting because they're able to make money from these kinds of grifts. And even people like Steve Bannon, you know, kind of falls into this category because he was uh, grifting people using this uh, We Build the Wall uh, pack that he put together with uh, Brian Colfage and Andrew Batalato. And, um, you know, they were pulling in millions and millions of dollars on that. And from what I understand, using that revenue stream to help fund other downstream operations. Um, you have people like Tim Poole, who I understand is bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars on the backs, back of being kind of like a sort of former left-wing activist-y kind of guy who's become more red-pilled. And um, I think he's you know able to fund potentially other operations and whatnot. So, um, I think what you're pointing to is is how vital money is as an ingredient for helping these operations to advance. And you know, does it matter whether the people are making that money legally, illegally, in good faith and bad faith? Kind of not. Like money is money, and money doesn't care who owns it, and money's going to do what money needs to do. And um, I think that that's just a part of of this you know landscape that that's integral to having it actually function. Yeah, I mean, it, it just really is fascinating. I mean, how much of this movement really has been sustained over the years from the, you know, some of these sketchy practices. I mean, I was just having a conversation last night uh, with some of my mates about the farming crisis in the 1980s. And um, that was when the, you know, the whole sovereign citizen movement kind of started to gain traction. But I mean, you know, you've got those guys out there. Uh, you know, their pretty much whole livelihood is just basically serving as what legal advocates, uh, you know, for the sovereign citizen citizen movement, essentially charging people outrageous sums of money to sit in on these lectures where they tell them, um, you know, how to get out of paying their taxes and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, that's the thing is that there's, you know, anytime I think that you can build um, a network of people that are committed to some, uh, you know, kind of cause like this. And, and I think it is more correct to think of it as like a, a cult type exercise than being like strictly a um, educational type affair because there's a really key element that I that I think I've landed on in, in part of all of my study on this that centers on the idea of social capital and the idea that manipulating social capital is at heart a lot of what this is about and what I mean by that is that if you can draw people who have what um, psychologists and, and behavioral sociologists would call self-uncertainty. People who have maybe low self-esteem or they're not sure about their relationships with others and they maybe have identity issues and that kind of thing. Those people are very susceptible to being drawn into new kinds of social capital configurations. So for example, if you were gonna lead a group to do radicalization, whether in America or in the Levant or wherever you're gonna do it, 
a really good place to go would be to go to like depression forums and to places where people have just broken up with their girlfriends or maybe they're trying to, you know, pick up women and that sort of thing. We know the pickup artist scene has been a direct pipeline into radicalization stuff in the US. And um, so I think that a lot of this is rooted in social capital and um, trying to basically weaponize social capital. And, you know, in the history of world affairs, we know that cults have been used as a kind of political weapon. And we know that churches have been used as a way to uh, mobilize and organize people and to create factions and that kind of thing. But in the US, we haven't been so accustomed to seeing what I would consider to be these relatively uh, fly-by-night cult operations come and go and be used for overtly political purposes. And I really think that's kind of how I might describe something like QAnon, is that it, it was a kind of a pop-up shop of a cult where you know very quickly people were able to be sucked into this uh, framework they were building social capital around it. So, you know, what you hear sometimes is that QAnon, it didn't really matter who Q was, it was about the friends we made along the way. I think Ron Watkins actually said that in like his final post on this, on the subject. And, um, you know, it, it is about creating weaponized social capital. It is about drawing people away from their families and their friends that might keep them a little bit more balanced in terms of their view of the world and bringing them into more extreme views of the world. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, that is a good point. I mean, how a lot of times this, uh, you know, these groups do um, often thrive off of targeting vulnerable individuals, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. uh, certainly, we've seen more and more of, um, especially throughout the Trump era. Um, yeah. I wanted to get into another topic that you got into in uh, your articles on Medium that's really fascinating to me. Um, so where does Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies fit into all of this? I mean, are some of the uh, circles that we've been talking about angling to make uh, these cryptos a kind of international reserve currency? Yeah, so, you know, it that was something that's been interesting to me is that I, I knew that it was lurking there under the surface and that there were various kinds of winks and nods to Bitcoin and, and you know, various people involved in the libertarian sort of world and connected with like the PayPal mafia that seemed to be super into it, but I couldn't necessarily sort of put it all together into a coherent framework. And I think um, if you look at the book called Sovereign Individual um, by uh, William Rees Mogg, and um, uh, I think the guy's name is James Davidson, um, that book pretty much outlines in like 1996, 1997 timeframe this whole arc. So like, you know, the idea of the sovereign individual that, uh, you know, taxation is theft, that states are no longer going to be in a position to provide what, you know, would be considered a good deal to a sovereign citizen and that a sovereign citizen, if they're smart, should divorce themselves from the state. And the way they should do that is by engaging with digital cash that is, um, you know, basically a sovereign technology separate from any central banks or federal reserve or nation states or what have you. And so that's a pretty prophetic, um, you know, line of reasoning to come into in like 1996. And then as we've seen over the last 25 years or so, that's kind of how this has started to play out. So, um, you know, I think there's real questions around 
where did Bitcoin come from? We still don't really know, you know, who, who created it and with what intentions. If you think about something like Bitcoin, it kind of is necessary that it have been created by somebody that we don't know who it is. So uh, it's not surprising to me that that's how it played out because now you just sort of have this thing you know, it was allegedly created by this guy named Satoshi Nakamoto, but everybody seems to believe that that's a pseudonym used by either, um, you know, one or more people. And it, it sort of echoes the whole Q and Goose for 2.0 thing in that regard as well. And that it, it creates the impression of having been one person, but for all we know, it was created by the GRU or the CIA or the CIA rogue faction or, you know, people in Australia, you know, who knows? It came from somewhere. So I think that um, if you think about cryptocurrency as an analog to the gold standard in that there are only 21 million Bitcoins in the world and that, that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins and that all ownership of Bitcoin from here until the end of Bitcoin is basically an argument over who has how many of them and what the value of those are expressed in um, other terms. Uh, you know, that, that's a pretty much perfect parallel to gold um, uh, in terms of, you know, how gold has historically been used in the world. And um, I think that that satisfies uh, a really deep psych psychological need for people who have been enamored with the gold standard um, and who think that Keynesian economics, you know, presents a kind of theft in that when you print more currency and create more money, you're diluting you know, people's shares and it's gonna to lead to runaway inflation and all of that. And you know, yeah, there's extreme examples that point to that. But I also think that uh, you know, we, we know from experience too that uh, hardcore uh, you know, constrained monetary supply like that leads to tremendous you know, boom and bust cycles that can be very hard on economies, which can disrupt continuous growth uh, and lead to very bad outcomes for a lot of people. So I think most people in most democratic societies don't really favor that kind of monetary policy. And I'm no expert on, on you know, monetary policy by any means. So you know, others I'm sure can give more nuanced views, but my, my overall point here is just that um, there's a tremendous obvious analog between Bitcoin and the gold standard. And to the extent that we are relitigating the new deal the gold standard, stuff like Vatican II, you know, this is this is part of the conversation is like, how do we see central banks going forward? And, you know, are we going to have central banks or are we going to just move everybody onto sovereign crypto? And the, the objection that I have to a lot of this is not so much that I think that crypto is inherently bad, but I think that, uh, you know, if, if we are going to pretend to have a democracy, or even a republic, you know, which is what a lot of these folks like to harp on, uh, we should be having some kind of conversation about what we want to do with monetary supply going forward. And right now, I think that there's a disconnect between what activists online and people connected with movements like QAnon, you know, under the surface um, are thinking about this relative to what, say, like central bankers are saying. So I heard a guy from the um, uh, federal, like the Financial Stability Board, uh, which is, you know, I guess a unit of, of U.S. government in some capacity, whether that's Federal Reserve or Treasury, I don't know. But uh, they were talking about how they didn't see that there was a need for any kind of like U.S. sovereign crypto to compete with something like Bitcoin, even as Europe, the Eurozone and China 
are introducing um, such uh, technologies, they're saying we're not going to do that. So like, okay, you know, like maybe that's a good idea, but um, I don't know. Like, what if what if these folks are trying to destabilize the economy by, um, you know, trying to undermine confidence in the financial sector and to shift investment over into crypto? That could happen in a really unpredictable way. And if if we don't have a conversation about that and regulate it, or at least be aware of what's going on, we could end up with a lot of people being harmed. So that's kind of where my head's at with it is like, we need to have a real conversation about what actually is going on with this. But I think it's, you know, from a philosophical and technological perspective, I think that that's what they think they're doing. How much of a role do you think that um, cyberpunk has really had in like rebranding all of this? Because I mean, it kind of seems like as a lot of this stuff began to be introduced uh, during the last decade, I mean, it was largely seen by a lot of activists as kind of sleek and sexy and this, uh, you know, kind of postmodern answer to uh, privacy concerns even though, I mean, obviously a lot of the stuff was ultimately an outgrowth of military research, but um, it does kind of seem like this, uh, you know, kind of William Gibson-esque spin, yeah. you know, really kind of deluded people into what that we were actually looking at. Well, I think there's a lot of delusions that have played a role in shaping public opinion about how this has rolled out. I mean, for one thing, you had uh, people like, you know, Gibson, but also people like John Perry Barlow, who did the whole famous uh, Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace kind of stuff, which um, talked about the need to, you know, keep the internet as kind of a free trade zone, if you will, and not tax it and, and try to keep innovation alive. And so you also had things like Section 230 uh, of the Communications uh, Decency Act that uh, prevent platforms from being sued for things that their users say and that sort of thing. And I think all those things are are good sort of starting points, but, you know, like at no point, like it, it created this impression that what happened on the internet was somehow or another independent from what happens in the real world. And I just don't think that that is true. And I think that for a while you had the internet being largely colonized by early adopters and geeks and, and scientists and all of that kind of thing. And so it was sort of this weird utopia in some ways, although it has certainly had its sewers, but it also had this very kind of, um, I don't know, kind of Burning Man quality to it, where it was, oh, it yeah. was sort of very special. Much kind of like yeah. an anarcho-capitalist kind of mentality to it. Cause I mean, you obviously had that direct outgrowth from like the eighties counterculture and the Zines and the church of the subgenius yeah. and all that stuff. All that stuff, yeah. And it was, you know, a weird mix of that kind of culture and like the 60s neckbeard kind of guys and, and then, you know, Discordian kind of stuff too. But that stuff had been floating around for decades online in different forms and BBSs and whatnot. And, you know, it didn't really have that much of an impact on what I would call the real world, which was still rooted in institutions and in big financial systems and oil and energy and all of that. Only when you started to end up with this kind of uh, you know, crossover point when most of the world was participating in this sort of cybernetic, uh, you know, culture, did it start to have reverberations on the, the world as a whole uh, in a serious way? And um, I think, you know, that's kind of the crossover point that we've reached is that we went over that abyss without really necessarily planning for it. And now we're kind of reacting to it and going, well, hmm, you know, what should we do now that we've 
kind of crossed that Rubicon and we don't really have anything in place to deal with 230. We don't really know what we're going to do about money. Like we got some real things we got to sort out here. And um, I think that uh, that's kind of the nature of the conversation that we need to have. But unfortunately, because we are so immersed in the day-to-day minutia of like politics and media, uh, you know, we're we're more worried about what Matt Gates may have done, and you know, rightly so, he's a creep. But same time, like you know, Matt Gates is the symptom of the very deep disease here that we're still not addressing, and we need to get about addressing the disease rather than just batting you know political points and gains back and forth with each other uh, on a daily basis. We need to get at some of these hard problems. So. still there yeah yeah sorry about that i forgot to unmute my mic there (sighs) sorry all right so we've covered fourth generation warfare a few times in this podcast my readers are familiar with its adoption by groups like the cmp but uh apparently 4gw just wasn't up to snuff anymore the next big thing is fifth generation warfare i believe this ties into your thoughts on crypto so could you unpack a little bit about 5gw for us yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I think the first thing to kind of recognize is that um, all of these kinds of frameworks are um, sort of notional in that they're really kind of reframing uh, existing ideas that have been around for a long time. So, you know, take it with kind of a, a bit of Shakespearean, you know, there's nothing new under the sun kind of attitude. But um, that being said, uh, you know, the fourth generation warfare framework as articulated by um, William Lind and Paul Weirich and uh, Joe Boyd and all of those guys that, you know, thought about that framework, you can kind of argue for a supplementation that you could perhaps characterize as uh, fifth generation warfare, which has been put together in a little handbook by a guy named uh, Daniel H. Abbott. And um, it's a concise little book and you can read it, but basically what he argues is that, you know, you've got everything that we kind of have articulated in fourth generation warfare is valid and totally works, perfectly good technology, but there's other stuff that can kind of be riding on top of that as well. And some of the things that he talks about are the fact that because uh, communication is instantaneous, uh, you don't really have a need for hierarchy. And he makes a, a kind of an argument that because communication used to be uh, quite slow and that it took, you know, and many days to get from like the commanding officer to like the back of the line of, the, of your army, that, uh, you know, certain kinds of structures and forms were more appropriate for that scenario. But today, um, you know, you've got a situation where everybody is able to communicate with everybody else basically instantaneously. And so what he argues is that that it presents an opportunity for a much more networked kind of warfare where effectively you can you know have put out directives you know sort of general orders in a military sense and say these are the things that would be nice if they happened and you know why don't you go figure out how to do that and why don't you guys you know encourage people to network and to communicate and to form their own little working cells and that sort of thing and they're able to uh, you know do that stuff more or less self-directed and also with a degree of plausible deniability and that anybody that's looking for kind of a command and control structure to disrupt will be sadly disappointed because all they see is just this weird network of people that are all kind of pulling in the same direction, but they don't know why. 
Um, additionally, uh, you know, I would I would say that um, some of these, you know, you, you've mentioned in your in your podcast quite a bit, and especially I think in some of the Wackle episodes that um, occultism and various kinds of I would say highly imaginative fringe practices can be used to shape reality. And while on the one hand, I think it's easy to dismiss a lot of that stuff as being kind of pseudoscience, nonsense, fake religions, blah, blah, blah. The fact of the matter is, is as an imagination technology, those things function, right? They actually have an effect on how the world uh, actually runs. And so uh, they shouldn't be dismissed so lightly out of hand. And I think that they're a real part of kind of this uh, fifth generation framework. Um, so towards that end, one of the things that is described by the uh, by Abbott is this idea that um, rather than uh, merely kind of like planning for like long-term generational warfare, which is I would argue a lot of what the fourth generation warfare strategy is about, um, where you know you like plan for thirty years out, you create the think tanks you need to create the context that you need in order to have a strategic advantage. With fifth generation warfare, it's more about warping the, the field of play so that the opponent doesn't understand the playing field. And so that's why I'm so concerned about this financial stuff and crypto is that um, my opinion is that the, the way that most, let's say Democrats think about conflict uh, is in terms of party conflict and about uh, party advantage and, you know, getting more seats on the Supreme Court and having more people in Congress and all of that, which of course, that's very real. That's that's certainly part of it. But um, what I think that their opponents are doing is they are basically trying to figure out how to blow up the economy or at least radically alter, radically alter the economic playing field so that, um, you know, the Democrats have to react to that. And they also would diminish any advantage that they may have politically. And so while, you know, a lot of people in media right now are focused on, you know, sorting out whatever the details were with QAnon, which is interesting and worth doing and, you know, probably historically needs to be settled, uh, the next operation is underway. And that is going to include screwing with the, you know, the battlefield itself so as to create chaos and uncertainty and probably advantage for for the party that is ready for that. And I say all this without really strongly identifying like with either party right now, because I, I see all this from kind of this parapolitical perspective that I think, um, you know, both parties are not necessarily up to speed on the parapolitics of this. But what I will say is that this Birch Society faction and like specifically the Steve Bannon faction is pretty up to speed on this on this parapolitics and um, you know fifth generation warfare stuff as are their counterparts in in Russia um, and possibly folks in China that they may be aligned with Falun Gong types what have you so I think it's a real threat and I think that you know again if we think we live in a democracy you know, you can't live in a, like, I don't think fifth generation warfare is compatible with democratic norms, for example. So anyway, I, you know, long answer, but I think that that's kind of the, the situation and, and how the framework affects what they're, what they think they're doing. 
Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see that. And I mean, that's really a, a very good point. I mean, I just think ultimately, I mean, a lot of these people like Bannon, um, they really get uh, technology uh, much better, I think, than a lot of their adversaries on the other side do. Um, mm -hmm. Again, it's kind of surprising uh, when you sort of see just how, quote unquote, old the left has gotten in the last uh, decade or so in comparison to some of the people on the right. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's um, it's a combination of understanding both, you know, kind of tech and like what the kids are doing these days, but it's also having a really deep understanding of these longstanding, uh, large scale factional conflicts. So, you know, are we going to promote fossil fuels or no? Are we going to redo Vatican II? Are we going to go back to the gold standard or, or crypto or what? You know, like these, and the thing that Steve Bannon gets to his credit is that it's those conflicts that drive major changes in world history. And um, I think that, I, I just don't hear anybody on the left talking about a deep understanding of, of those conflicts. Instead, it's all about tactical decisions and, and you know relatively short-term uh, strategic advantages versus how do you create this kind of, you know, almost Gramscian, you know, long-term hegemonic advantage that I just I just don't think that the left has got a good handle on and you know I on, on the one hand I think that I've heard people say like the left should fight fire with fire and, and I question sometimes what that even would mean in this context are we going to go full occult and do disinfo ops and like do weird you know CIA type stuff or is there some other remedy to this like do we need to expose the uh, these kinds of uh, let's say not so well they're covert operations and they're not necessarily operating in good faith so do you expose those and maybe limit the ability of people to undertake those kinds of operations or or do we want more of these kind of mindfuck scenarios going on and I can't even imagine what like a mindfuck thing from the left would look like right now but I'm pretty sure I don't want it and I definitely don't want it from the right either so it's it's a weird scenario yeah no, we have definitely entered the twilight zone, that is for sure. <laughs> mm hmm yeah. Now, um, you delved into support uh, Trump and Q have drawn uh, from ex-military and ex-intelligence officers throughout this. And to my mind, it seems like a lot of the support specifically has been coming from the Joint Special Operations Command and people affiliated with Fort Bragg. Um, JSOC is, of course, housed at Fort Bragg, as are most of the special operators. I'm really struck by the parallels uh, specifically between the military revolt against de Gaulle during the early 1960s in France and our current circumstances. Now, you look at the, uh, the backbone of the troops who revolted against uh, de Gaulle, they were overwhelmingly special operators or military intelligence, typically with a background in psychological warfare. Now, most of these men uh, were also veterans of the brutal colonial war in Algeria, which uh, many modern day members of JSOC um, have a bit of a fixation for, to put it mildly. Uh, do you see par similar parallels? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, I, I say that kind of coming to a lot of this um, study of the, of the military side relatively recently. But, um, you know, I think that there's, there's kind of this element that, that I think exists within that side of the military where, you know, they're used to doing stuff in a way that's, um, you know, kind of uh, covert and, and it's, you know, they're using pretty sophisticated psychological techniques to manipulate people into getting, you know, the outcomes that they want. 
And, you know, when you're used to having people tell you that the ends justify the means, and when you also have a history within the military of kind of suggesting that, uh, you know, the military system of, of governance and military rule, even, even things like martial law are perhaps preferable to uh, civilian control and, and to democratic norms. I think it creates, um, you know, kind of this feeling of superiority. And you think about, you know, films like A Few Good Men and, you know, you can't handle the truth and that kind of stuff. But that attitude does really shine through, I think. And I think also the fact that we have had an all military I'm sorry, an all-volunteer military for the last several decades, um, it means that when people do go to serve, they're told that they are among this very elite, you know, less than 1% of the country that is, is participating in this and that, you know, if it wasn't for them, the whole country would be, you know, in a bad way. And sure, you know, we, we need a strong military and it's great they're doing that. But there's almost kind of a gifted child syndrome that I think it develops there where you, you keep telling people how special they are and then you've got this other, you know, faction within the, the military that's like the special of the special. And if they ever get into a position where they're not, uh, you know, say like praised and rewarded or whatever, then they're, they're very likely to go rogue, you know? And I think that, you know, you can probably find examples of this throughout military history, throughout world history. And I don't think it's unique to the United States. And I don't think it's unique to this moment. Even looking back at the business plot, which I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about that until the last few months. Um, and looking at that whole history around Smedley Butler and the fact that, you know, these, uh, you know, I would call them union busting capitalists thought that they could get this army of veterans together and that Smedley Butler was the guy to do it because of his background and the respect that veterans had for him. I mean, you, you see the same kind of pattern uh, manifest itself there. I think the, the main fuck up that they made was that they didn't realize just how much of an anti-capitalist Smedley Butler had become because of his deployments in Asia and the fact that he uh, really came to resent being what amounted to a policeman for uh, American corporate interests. Actually, so, um, he referred to himself as uh, what was it a high-priced gangster of capitalism i think yeah exactly you know and he, he you know his line like war is war is a racket you know um so like i, I th that was clearly a, a fuck up on their part but had they gotten somebody that was more sympathetic to uh that line of thinking i think we could have seen something similar to this go down in like 1935 you know so um uh, you know, that's what I think is interesting about history is that it, it, it never repeats, but it it's often rhymes. And, you know, to the extent that these kinds of network tensions exhibit themselves repeatedly over time, um, I think they're instructive in helping us to understand, you know, what's happened. And I, I also, I think that, unfortunately, as much as I'm friends with many reporters, and I'm really empathetic to the cause of, you know, American journalism and American reporting and all of that, the level of historical understanding that's been brought to bear to the current situation has been effectively none. <laughs> and it's been really difficult, I think, to make sense of this for most Americans because there has been no parapolitical context brought to it. And, um, you know, it, it's surprising how much resonance I've gotten from people who, you know, look at what I'm saying and, and you know, with respect to these 
the involvement of the military people and the fact that this has happened before and all this kind of thing, it, it helps them to create meaning around what's actually, what they're actually observing. And um, I think that that's a crucial function right now. And obviously I also need to be super careful not to, you know, accidentally misstep into the realm of conspiracy thinking and unproven theories and whatever else. But I think, you know, as you well know, uh, there is so much of this that is just plain flat out history. It's on paper. You can observe it. It's well known, you know, and you don't need to make up crazy conspiracy theories to explain this stuff. It's just, you know, historical fact, you know. So anyway, I think we can do a better job of popularizing history in order to um, help people to uh, to make sense of this. And, you know, I I don't mean to go on too long, but I came at this from a little bit of a weird angle in that my background is primarily as a technologist, but as I mentioned, I did a lot of study of uh, history and things like that in school and, um, you know, really understood well the, the whole concept of spy networks in the 50s and, and how the Soviets were infiltrating American society and that kind of thing. So I have a little bit more context than some people on that. And the other thing that's been kind of weird is that my uh, my father's mentor was actually Donald Barr, uh, Will, William Barr's father. Um, he, he was enrolled in a uh, kind of a special science program at Columbia University in like 1958, 59 timeframe. And, and Barr actually helped my father uh, with some, you know, career things and that sort of thing. So it's like, you know, there are some like personal drivers that like, you know, draw you to get pulled into some of this stuff. And it's just, it's crazy when you start to see how interconnected the history all is in a very legitimate way. Well, sadly, I mean, this isn't the uh, the history that, I mean, most people were taught at school, um, which I think is uh, kind of part of the problem. I mean, and on top of that, I mean, most of what you do learn is so insanely dull, um, which I kind of get is why most people don't have any interest yeah. in history at all. Uh, yeah, agreed. It is uh, quite fascinating. So while we're on the topic of history, one other aspect about uh, the attempted coup about the Gaul that I wanted to bring up. Um, so some of the military men uh, didn't give up after the revolt was put down. They formed what is known as the Secret Army Organization, or OAS, uh, which is the French organization. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to try to pronounce that. So anyway, uh, they had quite a legacy, bloodstained legacy of terrorism across Europe. Is that something that we should be worried about over here? Well, I think, you know, from my perspective, part of the issue that we have right now is that we have all of these engines that are driving radicalization. And, um, you know, in studying what took place on January 6th, the way that a lot of us in the research community were thinking about it was that you had these different factions that were aligning in common cause that day and that that was of concern. But when you broke it down into the component factions, it, it perhaps was a little bit less frightening than it might otherwise have been. Now, obviously, we had the issue with the Capitol Police not sufficiently protecting the building, and, and you know that was unpredicted. But in terms of um, these factions being very well organized at that point in time, there was a lot of reason to believe that they weren't very well organized. And so, for example, you have, um, I would say, kind of a spectrum of groups. Uh, if you look at um, the longstanding white supremacist groups uh, and the KKK and then those kinds of things that go back decades. Well, those groups have a decent amount of uh, social capital invested in them at this point. You know, they've got relationships that maybe last over decades. They may have been involved in real world meat space kind of stuff at some point. 
Um, and, uh, you know, those, those are people I would consider to be pretty dangerous, but there's not that many of them. You know, there's certainly more than there should be, but there's not a ton. Then you have, you know, kind of a, another tier of people like the Proud Boys, which the Proud Boys, I mean, the Proud Boys is almost like kind of created as a joke. You know, it's, it's got elements in it that are just kind of ridiculous to see if people will go along with it. And yet they are. But regardless, it is real. And, um, you know, it has people participating in it. But a lot of that participation is kind of parasocial and online and not necessarily physical real world stuff. And also because it's fairly new, they don't have a lot of history with each other. So, you know, they don't necessarily have these kinds of long-term relationships that um, are going to lead to, uh, let's say, physical real-world outcomes necessarily. And then there's a bunch of other kind of groups that are sort of in between, you know, the three percenters and the Oath Keepers and the um, Boogaloo Boys and all this sort of stuff. Um, and then you have, you know, some random cults and stuff thrown in too. Like there seems to be some legit, like I am, white supremacist stuff out west like in, in uh, Idaho and Montana and that sort of thing so you know there's stuff like that you can't properly account for and then there's Ammon Bundy who is doing his whole army thing as, as well and that seems to be an emerging threat so anyway my point with all of this is that you have all these different networks that are in various stages of radicalization and to the extent that um, those networks become interconnected, that they start to become uh, interested in building social capital with each other, and that they start to unite in common cause around things that, um, you know, could potentially lead to real world dangerous stuff. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really potentially bad developing situation. It's something that we need to keep an eye on. No, that certainly is. All right, so to wrap up, uh, in 2021, you know, we're living in an America that has been bombarded almost nonstop by psychological warfare efforts for well over seven decades now. And since the 21st century, especially military-grade psi war has been wielded by corporations and wealthy individuals against the public at large. So the long-term effect of this, effects of this on consensus reality have just been utterly devastating. At this point, can such a thing even be salvaged? And what steps are necessary going forward to accomplish this, if so? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the million dollar question, right? Is, you know, how do we kind of come back from this? And, you know, uh, what what is the nature of the reality that we're actually inhabiting? Uh, you know, I think once you start to see sort of how the, the sausage gets made, as it were, and how this psychological, uh, you know, landscape is, is created, uh, it can make you a little cynical about kind of regular day-to-day -day politics. And I think well, that's one of the last things that we want to do is to cause people to disengage from the systems that we do have. But at the same time, like we need to get a lot smarter about how this whole sausage making situation is taking place and what do we do about it? So, you know, I, I say this as kind of an amateur sociologist an amateur, um, uh, you know, observer of this situation in that um, I think that uh, you know, we need to first probably worry about exposing the nature of how some of this stuff works. And I think, you know, busting out of the kind of uh, frame of the game, as if you will, to kind of go beyond the fourth wall of the show and say, no, look, really, here's what's really happening uh, is super useful. Now, again, it's hard to tell how much traction you can get with that sort of thing 
through like straight documentary and, and reporting and things like that. So I don't hold any illusion that like, oh, we just need to, you know, clearly the problem is people just don't know what's going on. We should just tell them and then they'll know and then it's fine. You know, you, you've, you've got to break through their, their cognitive biases and actually have an effect on culture. So I think that there's probably roles to be had for film and art to um, inform people about kind of the nature of, of some of this reality. I think, you know, you mentioned in some other shows about um, the, you know, Discordianism and Bavarian Illuminati. And one of the real problems that you have in communicating with the public in a serious way and a fact-based, history-based way about some of these networks that have persisted over time and what their goals are is that you end up sounding like, you know, a fake Carrie Thornley, Robert Anton Wilson article from, you know, 1969. And we've got to somehow or another bring people back to reality from this kind of pop culture conception of uh, anybody that talks about history or networks is a nutcase, because that's just not true. And, you know, at the end of the day, like that does inform how our history works. And the, the problem is, is that we've had all that polluted with fake narratives that overwhelm, you know, what are some pretty reliably good, true narratives. And I think people just can't tell the difference between those two things. And to the extent that that confusion has been created, uh, it's impossible for people to tell the difference between reality and fantasy. And that's, I think, the basis for a kind of mass schizophrenia, <laughs> you know? And I think that that's, that's symptomatic of, of kind of the world that we live in. So I think that's, that's one aspect. And then I also think that in terms of defending against disinformation, which I think is a mechanism for altering social capital, if you, if you can go back to my social capital metaphor that I used before, um, we need to be better, more tightly knit as a society so that we're not so easily dividable. Like if you wanna divide Americans and get them riled up about stuff, it is so painfully cheap and easy right now to do that. We're an attractive target for anybody that might wanna do that, whether external enemies or internal factions or what have you. So like right now, you know, we're divided geographically by like, you know, the coasts are progressive, the rural areas aren't so much, you know, we've got uh, racial divisions, we have income divisions, we have, um, you know, all of these kinds of things that are just very easily exploitable. And it's cheap as hell to do it because you can just use online self-serve advertising for the most part to drive that stuff and free social media accounts and whatever, everybody can be their own psyops master now. So I think that we need to focus on building a narrative and some meaning around what it means to be an American. I think other countries should focus on the same for their countries without, you know, obviously straying into the realm of nationalism and that kind of thing. But I think that we have not asked regular Americans to do very much for the national purpose in a long time. You know, we used to have people going into wars and you know de dealing with various things that needed to be done, things like the CCC, which we're starting to see some glimpses of things like that now. But um, I, I personally think we need to expand the uh, adoption of national service programs that such that we're just bringing in many, many more people and funding many, many more positions and programs that help to connect people across these exploitable divides. Because that way, when information attacks come in that try to pit urban people versus rural or black versus white or Hispanic versus Asian, um, people aren't gonna be so 
easily manipulable to fall for that. They're going to go, you know, I don't really resonate with that message because my experience says otherwise. And um, we need to start doing that now as a long-term strategic uh, initiative. You know, it's a defense thing. It's a national security thing to protect ourselves so that in 20 or 30 years, we're way less vulnerable in that regard. And I, and I think we need to start on that now. So. Yeah, it just kind of seems like in general, um, you know, one of the biggest reasons why we're also susceptible to these tactics is just the fact that there's been such a breakdown in community in the United States, um, you know, especially like I would say in the last 20 years or so. And they're just, um, I think really since Occupy Wall Street, there really hasn't even been an attempt to try to put together a mass movement that would appeal to, you know, America as a whole instead of, uh, you know, just certain factions of it. Well, sometime have me back on and we'll talk about Occupy Wall Street because one of the weird things that we found and we probably don't have really time to get into today is um, the fact that a lot of these critters that were involved with um, uh, QAnon and also with uh, Standing Rock also were connected to various things at, at uh, Occupy. Interestingly, also, the guy who founded Occupy Wall Street was a guy named um, Kala Lassen, who was Estonian by birth, but who was living in Vancouver and had lived in Japan and done some things. He um, uh, founded the magazine Adbusters. So um, Occupy was actually kind of a product of Adbusters. And Lassen has been real interesting in that he's gone on to argue very heavily for memetic warfare but he's also proven now to not really be so much on the left. He seems to be what I would consider to be a kind of quasi-fascist uh, uh, right-wing kind of guy and, and seems to be somewhat enamored with some of these libertarian hardcore things that we've seen emerge through the Q channels. So that inv investigation is ongoing, but the most damning thing that we found was that there were multiple people involved, especially in Occupy Los Angeles, who went on to become directly involved in QAnon, and they were pushing libertarianship at the time at Occupy LA. And so some of the people that have been involved with Occupy LA have now started to try to reckon with that fact and try to understand to what extent Occupy was in fact an instrument, or at least in some cases, an instrument uh, of these like hardcore libertarian networks um, or like, I don't think that was the case in every city. It doesn't seem based on the research we've been able to do so far, but um, multiple cities seem to have had infiltration and or direct participation at a high level from people that are harboring these fairly illiberal um, and I would say non-democratic points of view, which just totally goes against the popular narrative and history of what everybody thinks Occupy was about, and also how Occupy went on to inform the Bernie Sanders movement and the, the Bernie Sanders campaign and various other uh, efforts around that, as well as many media outlets that were birthed out of the Occupy milieu, uh, arguably um, are connected to this, this rather illiberal libertarian network. So um, I, what I'm kind of hoping for is that with the 10 year anniversary of Occupy happening this year, that some of the think pieces that are gonna come out are gonna help to expose some of that frame. And I think it's gonna be interesting for people to see how warped their sense of reality really was uh, coming out of that. Cause certainly as somebody who considers themselves nominally you know, progressive and probably center left, basically, 
I never had any reason to assume that Occupy was not a fundamentally good faith left wing effort. Um, I didn't think it was that smart sometimes, but I didn't think it wasn't good faith. And now that I'm seeing what we're seeing now, I think it's the truth is more complicated than that. So, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I can definitely see the trajectory you're getting at. Um, you know, one of the guys um, I used to work with, I believe, was actually, um, you know, at the Capitol on January 6th. Um, and this was a guy who really, you know, his political activism started back with Occupy Wall Street. Um, I think he was like a Bernie Sanders supporter uh, as recently as like 2016. But just kind of gradually that drift into eventually becoming a QAnon person. Um, yeah. But yeah, it just, it, I mean, it's just fascinating to me how much the, this kind of crypto libertarian movement has played in underline, undermining so many of these liberal movements over the years. I mean, this is so evident when you look at the 60s, because you had kind of the threat of the new left that began to, you know, emerge in the early part of the decade that was geared towards genuine social activism with the civil rights and so forth. And then you had this kind of counterculture that really grew out of um, this early libertarian movement in the um, early 60s. Uh, mm -hmm. which have really ultimately undermined uh, the new left by the 70s because it just kind of got to this whole, you know, we'll just drop out, uh, drop some acid and um, let the politics sort itself out and uh, that kind of paved the way for the Reagan revolution. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of parallels there. And I think also the fact that the, uh, the, the hardcore libertarians, um, I think, tried to play it straight let's say you know they, they were like okay well we want to win so we're going to run a candidate and that was sort of where their heads were at in like 1964 with goldwater you know it was like we're, we'll play the game as it's laid out and maybe we'll win and then when we do we'll hold power or whatever well they realized that there was no way that was going to work and so they started in my opinion to adopt you know a variety of what i would consider to be sort of under the radar measures, uh, you know, and, and also these kinds of fourth generation warfare strategies, but, you know, things like forming the Heritage Foundation and forming ALEC and this Council for National Policy and all of these kinds of chess move, chessboard moves that uh, led to some kind of long-term strategic advantage. And then that's, you know, all basically fine within the, the limits of, of that, you know, kind of system. But uh, I think the really kind of clever and much darker thing that they've done is to realize that somebody like a Robert Lefevre, you know, they're, they're not really so much even a fan of like government, like they're really anti-government in many ways. And what they really want is what he described as autarky, which is like self-rule, rule by the individual. And so what they've kind of gone on to do is to take that idea of autarky and see if they can find allies with people that might be considered to be more anarchists, you know, people that just are opposed to the idea of a state at all, but they're coming at it from more of a left-wing perspective. But if you package the autarchist narratives correctly, and in a way that has like sufficient, you know, sort of crystals and breath work, and maybe some UFOs and woo and whatever else, candles and shit, uh, you can attract uh, ostensibly left-wing people to the cause quite quite easily. And then you've got this kind of unholy Leninist faction of like people that want to overthrow the state who are coming at it, one from a very right-wing perspective and the other from a, I would say, a more confused anarchist perspective. But either way, you know, that, that faction, when they ally together is really quite terrifying because everybody else is just trying to like, you know, get along and have a state that actually functions. 
uh, is is right up against those people's interests. And and furthermore, by peeling off that uh, anarchist uh, far left um, kind of element, you you know remove their potential from participating in in what I would consider to be more center left state statist um, uh, politics. And so you can very readily. Uh, drain the ability of, of a center left to get anything done, which I think, you know, is, is a pretty explicit strategy that was employed in, you know, Ukraine and, and even I would argue a lot of that kind of strategy was deployed in the Cold War uh, in the in the Soviet republics, um, you know, in the 50s and 60s and stuff. So none of this stuff is new. It's just that we in the US are so gullible that we think that like, you know, everything is exactly what it says on the tin. And, you know, we take everything at face value. And, you know, on the one hand, I don't necessarily think that like, you know, the Sanders campaign was a complete fabrication, but I don't think it wasn't not in part a fabrication. I think that it was a piece of political technology that was designed in part to diminish um, support for the center left. And, you know, there were obviously a lot of good faith people participating in that, but it's, it's like what I was saying about um, Occupy. You know, Occupy was also kind of a, uh, let's say not quite what it said on the tin. It was this weird mix of, you know, kind of anarcho, uh, you know, libertarians and uh, and then left wing agitators. So, and and that's just you know to explain that to your like average American person, that's just kind of got a either a conventional or a casual understanding of politics um, is is kind of a lot. And I get it. Like I I know it sounds kind of crazy, but I think that's the truth of it. So. Yeah, it's just not a point of reference that, I mean, a lot of people have, um, you know, that's why I'm kind of thankful that I've uh, spent so much time looking at 80s counterculture, because, I mean, when you uh, you really look at some of the designs and stuff, I mean, it's really obvious where you see, uh, on the one hand, these kind of neo-situationists, I mean, uh, you know, rubbing elbows with a lot of these anarcho-libertarians and that type of things. So, I mean, that, you know, alliance was certainly already in the air um, very strongly by the 1980s at the height of Reaganism. So yeah, um, for sure. You know, it's very much a thing and it's, yeah, it's very little remarked upon. Well, on that note though, I should probably wrap up for now. I'm sure you've got a plenty of stuff to do today. So um, anyway, thank you so much for dropping by. This has been a uh, wonderful chat and uh, hopefully everybody listening to it has enjoyed it, enjoyed it as much as I have uh, conducting it. So on that note, yeah, I will uh, sign off for now and as always, good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>